You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. For joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and author of a book about American democracy entitled Power Politics. There has been considerable interest in recent months in generative AI that can address questions, develop videos, write code, and perform other tasks. Using large language models, these tools have considerable potential to transform many sectors and bring advanced technologies to a variety of tasks. One can imagine lots of ways that generative AI could affect society as a whole. However, there's been little attention to the workforce ramifications of generative AI. Will it take jobs? And if so, what sectors will be affected? Will it be possible for organizations to use these new tools to automate jobs and reduce dependence on human labor? How will it affect areas from law and medicine to education, retail, and finance? To discuss these important topics, I'm pleased to be joined by a distinguished expert. John Villasenor is a professor of engineering, law, public policy, and management at UCLA and co-director of its Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. He also is a non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, where he writes on emerging technologies and their impact on society, governance, and the economy. John. Welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. You recently wrote a widely read paper for Brookings entitled How AI Will Revolutionize the Practice of Law. It is a terrific paper and it is available on our website at brookings.edu. Among other things, you argue that AI is poised to reshape the practice of law. How do you think AI will affect legal practices? And do you believe that lawyers should be worried about losing their jobs? Well, first of all, let me start with the, the second part of your question is I, I think there's still going to be very much a need for attorneys. And I don't think attorneys are going to be losing their jobs uh, as a result of these technologies. I do think, however, that the nature of the job will change uh, to the extent that these technologies continue to develop and eventually get incorporated uh, in tools that are available and designed specifically to assist attorneys in some of the work that they do. So I'll just give a couple of examples. One is uh, efficiency improvements. Uh, these tools will make it much faster, much more efficient to draft legal documents like motions and contracts and, and so on. Um, you'll still need, of course, the human factor. You still need the, the human expertise, but these tools can very much uh, accelerate that process. I also think that it's going to create a need to develop the skills to use these tools um, to because it's, it's not as if uh, attorneys are going to be able to sort of sit back and push a button and out pops a beautifully written, perfectly worded 30 page motion to submit to a court. Uh, there's going to still be a lot of need to basically look at the output of these tools, look, decide, learn how to prompt the tools in order to have them produce useful output, evaluate the output for accuracy whether it makes the points that, that they want to make, edit on top of that, 
combined outputs from various different tools, as well as outputs produced by humans the traditional way, just you know, from writing from scratch. So there's a lot of skills that are required as well. And the final thing I'll mention is I think it's going to broaden access to legal services by making it less expensive uh, for the many individuals and small businesses who lack the resources to gain access to legal services. So I think there's some real, real benefits there as well. I agree with you. I think we are still going to need attorneys, but I do want to add, I'm sure your paper worried lawyers all across the country. We've had such a wide readership of that, a tremendous interest. I know you've got media uh, inquiries about that, and it really is an outstanding uh, paper. It provides a number of insights into the transformative power of AI. So uh, as you started to uh, mention, in addition to the potential job impact, you note that attorneys are going to require new job skills. What kinds of skills will they need and how will AI affect the manner in which they do their jobs? So I think there's a couple of ways that skills are going to be important. One is I think a lot of the future written work product that attorneys will produce will be in some sense a collaboration between the attorney uh, or a team of attorneys and these AI tools, which the attorneys are using to accelerate their process of producing written documents. And so I think part of the skills necessary to get the most out of this process are going to be knowing, you know, like in many other domains, knowing which tool to use, because, because there's not only going to be one single AI-based large language model tool that all attorneys are using the same one. There'll be different tools for different purposes. There's going to be, there's a burgeoning ecosystem of startup companies that are going to be entering this space. They will have different products, some better, some not as good, some focused on particular types of work that uh, attorneys do, some focused on other types of work. So it'll take knowledge of, of this space to sort of know which, which tools to use. That doesn't mean, I should say, that you know every attorney needs to kind of stop what they're doing and try to become an expert on every single detail about what's going on in this space. But I think law firms in general um, would be remiss if they didn't have at least somebody who's sort of looking at this ecosystem and making some recommendations regarding how uh, these tools can be used to improve the efficiency and the quality of the output that they're producing. As a general point, I think there are going to be lots of people who are going to need to upgrade their uh, job skills. Kind of the old model that we have embraced up to this point has been investing in education up through about age 25. And then after that, people are kind of on their own. Uh, that model, I think, is going to give way to a model based on lifelong learning, where people are going to have to upgrade their job skills at ages 30, 40, 50, and 60, virtually throughout their lifetime. So I think that's certainly going to be true for attorneys, but uh, probably true for a lot of other uh, sectors. I know that lots of lawyers may be worried about losing their jobs to AI, but you also point out a possible benefit in terms of more people gaining access to legal services. You note that AI may make it less costly to pursue litigation. So how could AI broaden public access to legal services? A couple of ways. Well, one is that simply that it takes, um, it's not, it's not, you know, without AI, it's not cheap. It's, it's expensive to hire an attorney to do something. So, um, you know, you can think of any, any number of examples, but, you know, one example could be, let's say, uh, a resident of an apartment uh, where the landlord is, you know, being, uh, you know, neglectful and failing to fulfill the obligations that a landlord has. And, uh, and it's at the point where maybe the, the, 
the tenant you know is justified in and is uh, considering pursuing legal action um the fact you know it, it can be expensive to do that whereas with these tools the firms that work with you know tenants in that position would be positioned to help a much larger number of tenants simply because they can do the work associated with pursuing litigation for any one tenant much more efficiently than before using tools like AI. So that's one of what I am sure are many examples of how this technology can help broaden access to legal services. And I think your answer in the paper that you wrote illustrates the double-sided nature of AI. AI is really interesting because it almost always is some combination of costs and uh, benefits. So there are certainly risks uh, in terms of jobs and uh, certain tasks getting automated, uh, but on the public access uh, question, there could be societal uh, benefits. I mean, even from a job uh, standpoint, AI offers the potential in many different sectors to make jobs more interesting because we can automate the routine or manual aspects of uh, people's uh, jobs and thereby let them engage in the more creative aspects. So there could be a lot of benefits. Uh, yeah, yeah, there could. And, and also, you know, one other, you know, negative, which I think is important to highlight, potential consequence of, of you know, making it easy to, for example, create the documents uh, that are involved in, in legal actions. I mean, that's obviously a benefit in the example I just mentioned, but it can be a, a bad thing if it's, if it's misused by people who, who might go around and generating and filing thousands of frivolous lawsuits, right? Just playing the numbers game, you know, trying to basically extract settlements from people. And so there's there's certainly going to be, uh, as with so many other technologies, there are going to be some really good uses and there are gonna be people who misuse the, the greater efficiency that these sorts of technologies make possible to take advantage of, of those in ways that are, you know, not particularly productive. And I think that is really the challenge that we face as a society, that as these various emerging technologies unfold and start to uh, transform a variety of different areas, how do we get their benefits while also avoiding some of the downsides? I think that is the big challenge. Almost every one of these emerging technologies has an upside and a downside, and how we navigate that balance and make sure we get the benefits without suffering uh, too many ill effects is really the big challenge uh, going forward. I, I agree. So far, we have focused on AI that could transform the law, but it also is possible that it could have tremendous consequences for areas such as medicine, education, and retail, among other areas. I mean, for example, there already are algorithms that can read x-rays and CAT scans with a high degree of accuracy. There actually have been peer-reviewed papers in science and other uh, major outlets illustrating uh, that, that some of these algorithms actually have an accuracy rate almost as good as uh, radiologists. So they're not going to be replacing radiologists because we're going to still need to verify AI judgments, but it could affect the number of radiologists that medical facilities need. So John, how do you think AI could affect the practice of medicine? Really interesting question, and I should say at the outset that any any of these sort of attempts to predict um, these things are, you know, five years from now, they may not look like very good predictions. But here, with that important caveat, a couple of couple of thoughts. As you uh, noted, uh, AI has already shown really strong promise in terms of uh, looking at images. And for example, there, there can be in images hard to find features that uh, 
AI can sometimes be a really good complement to a traditional human radiologist. Um, AI can also impact medicine in some other really interesting ways. You know, let, let's just take a hypothetical. Uh, suppose you've had, I don't know, an MRI of your knee because you've been having knee problems and, you know, the doctor is very busy and, you know, you know, comes in and talks to you for five minutes about it and then walks out. But what you'd really be interested in doing is having a 15 or 20 minute conversation about, hey, what does this mean? What does this show? You know, hey, what does this piece of the image do? You can imagine, not, not yet today, but not too far down the road, an AI uh, engine being able to actually have that conversation with you where you point out features of the images and ask questions and it gives you accurate answers. Of course, there's a lot of, a lot of things that would have to happen before you'd be in a position to offer uh, patients that kind of service because you want to make sure it's accurate and, and so on. But you can imagine that it could, it could, that kind of thing could be possible in not too long. And then more broadly, uh, as many people have observed, AI has absolutely tremendous per, uh, potential in relation to pharmaceuticals in terms of of developing, helping with the development of new drugs. And that, of course, directly ties to the practice of medicine. If we can find new drugs that we wouldn't otherwise have found, thanks to AI, that can be used to address diseases. Yeah, that uh, pharmaceutical application, I think, is an intriguing one because, you know, what scientists often have to do is read the scientific literature and somehow try and come up with new chemical compounds that uh, could have af applicability to a particular illnesses. It turns out that between AI and machine learning, those tools can actually read the literature much more quickly and find potential compounds that could be helpful. And so I think you're exactly right. It could speed up drug uh, discovery and reduce uh, the cost. And another thing, another thing AI can do is it can do protein folding uh, problems, which um, which is one of the really important techniques which is used in relation to pharmaceutical development. And AI has tremendous power to do that uh, and then to use those results for new drugs. So I think, I think we'll see some really important advances um, in the next couple of years or five to 10 years at least uh, on that. I mean, I think in the medical area in general, there are lots of exciting uh, new technologies that are coming into being, and COVID actually accelerated the adoption of some of these things. We're seeing advances in telemedicine. You can now do video conferences with specialists who live many miles away from where you live, so technology kind of broadens the pool of medical expertise. Uh, in a lot of areas, uh, people are starting to use uh, health monitors or sensors that track vital signs. Uh, those materials uh, get sent directly to your physician's offices. They can perhaps see signs of problems before you actually get sick and therefore intervene in a preventive medicine sort of way. And, you know, with many illnesses, the earlier you start treating something, uh, the better the, the odds are. So I do think technology offers a number of benefits in the medical area, but it also could have some of these job ramifications that we've been talking about. John, you and I both work in the knowledge sector, uh, you for a university and me for a uh, think tank. How could AI affect professors and researchers? Should people like us be worried about our jobs? Well, I think uh, there's uh, going to be a need uh, for professors and researchers and people at think tanks. I also think it's going to be important for uh, people in those positions to engage with and understand what the technology is capable of doing. So, for example, in, in my teaching at, at UCLA, I encourage my students to use these AI tools when, for example, they're doing their writing um, for both uh, sort of educational and practical reasons. Educational reasons, because I think that 
you know, students in the, in the 21st century, in the mid 21st century, which is when today's students are going to have their careers, AI is going to be all over. They're going to need to use these tools and, and not, you know, taught not to be afraid to use them uh, or that using them is necessarily a bad thing. Um, and so I, you know, and then there's this pr the practical reason that I think, you know, you can't really, even if you tell, for example, students they're not allowed to use these tools, they're, they're going to use them anyway. So I think it affects professors in the sense that it, it, it behooves professors to engage with these capabilities and to incorporate them into their educational philosophy in various ways. And there's no one right or wrong way to do it. And then for researchers and, and others at think tanks, I think these tools can be uh, can be mechanisms to do things more efficiently and more quickly. And I think all of us, whether we're in a university or in a think tank or, or frankly, anywhere else, need to also understand that these tools uh, aren't you know, necessarily always correct, right? They don't necessarily give us the correct answer. And so we, we want to use them, but as at the same time, we want to be careful to fact check, as it were, what comes out of them and, you know, understand that, you know, for example, when a professor or a researcher writes a paper at the end of the day, they're responsible for what goes in the paper and, you know, you can't blame the AI if, if, if it's inaccurate. So we need to be sort of responsible consumers and users of these technologies. And I think the culture shift to get us all sort of thinking in that mode is, is one that's going to take place. It's already taking place, you see it now, but it's gonna take place more over the coming years. I agree. I, I do think there are ramifications for the knowledge sector. So for example, in the research area, I could see some of these new generative AI tools being used for routine research reports. Uh, like for example, they can clearly do literature reviews and do them uh, very quickly. Uh, they can compile data and undertake analyses. So there are certain tasks uh, that we ourselves may do right now uh, where these tools can supplement uh, what we do. But I still think human creativity is going to matter a lot. Uh, I played around uh, both with uh, BARD and uh, ChatGBT. I often find uh, that the answers that they come up with uh, in response at least to social science questions is kind of at a Wikipedia level, meaning they're pretty generic. You're not gonna get big advances in knowledge uh, based on the tools, at least that we have right now. Uh, they can kind of compile information that are widely accepted out there in the general community, but that's not the same as generating uh, new knowledge. So I'm not super worried, uh, let's say on a 10 year time horizon, but it is a question how rapidly these tools are going to develop. And, and if I could just say a, a couple things, yeah, exactly. As, as you say, you know, the snapshot we have today is, is just that it's a snapshot in time. And if you look at the extraordinary advances that we've seen, you know, just in the last year in this space, it, it wouldn't be at all surprising if a year or two from now, you know, these tools are, are much better. Um, the other thing I'll say is these tools can be useful in ways that are, are, you know, aren't necessarily dramatic, but can still be useful. I've had the experience, and perhaps you have as well, and I think many other people have, where you're sort of, you get writer's block. You know, for example, I'll have, you know, a couple of points I want to make, and it just, it takes me too long to sort of figure out how to write the paragraph that makes these points, right? But I know what points I want to make. Um, if I could just sort of write those points out in bullet point form and say to a tool, hey, write a paragraph that makes these points, and, you know, a second later I have the paragraph, you know, that's a small thing, but added up, that actually can help, right? So, you know, even in sort of you know, less dramatic ways than, you know, finding features on Im medical images that a radiologist may not have found, just little things like helping, you know, speed the process of writing uh, can be can be something that, you know, in the aggregate makes a big difference in terms of productivity. But, you know, the one thing I worry about with that particular example is like when I'm using search engines, it will return a bunch of links. I can read the papers on which uh, 
those uh, analyses are based. The problem with generative AI is it produces answers, but with no citations. So I don't know where they got that material. I don't know how reliable it is. You know, in an academic uh, setting, like citations matter. Uh, and so I do worry about that aspect of it. Like as a researcher, I want to know where the material came from. Well, I, I, and I agree. I would say I think some of them do provide citations, but not all the time. But but yes, if there's an assertion of fact, like, you know, the population of such and such a city is, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and if the only source I have is because, you know, a generative AI tool told it to me, I wouldn't put that in an academic paper or or any other uh, publication until I checked it myself. But but even with the need to check those sorts of things, it can still be a time saving tool, um, you know, in, in finding the information in the first place that perhaps I wouldn't have found on my own. So it is not just professional occupations that face potential job losses, but entry-level uh, positions in retail and finance, as well as a number of other areas. John, how do you see AI affecting those sectors? No, it's a really interesting question. I can cer- I can certainly see, and, and by the way, I should say that you know there are. I don't know that there is a whole lot of new, newly published, peer-reviewed papers on. Of the generative AI impact on the labor market yet, but there's been quite a number of papers posted, you know, preprints by highly respected academic researchers. They've posted these online and they're, I guess, going into the into the peer review process. And, and the reason I mention that is because very often the metric is not, you know, whether a job is going to be replaced because there aren't that many jobs which could be sort of completely replaced, although there are some. Um, but it really people look at sort of the percent, you know, for a particular job, what percent of the tasks involved in that job could be done by uh, a large language model. And, you know, that, that's, a, it, it's, that's a sort of a more nuanced way to look at it. And I think there's been, you know, some indication that um, I was looking at uh, one paper that was uh, published by a group of authors from uh, OpenAI uh, and the University of Pennsylvania and Open Research. And, you know, they, they said impact was going to be at all wage levels. Uh, and here's a quote here, quote, with higher income jobs potentially facing greater exposure to LLM, LLM capabilities and LLM powered software, close quote. So in some sense, it's, it sort of inverts some of the technology impacts of jobs, you know, say from a generation ago where you had factory automation uh, displacing, uh, you know, jobs that were, you know, for example, in factory assembly, here you have uh, some of the higher income jobs more exposed to these technologies. So it, it's, you know, it's, it remains to be seen what the specific impacts are, but I think it's going to impact uh, jobs across all other sectors, the, uh, all sectors. The, the other thing I'll say is I can imagine some jobs where there can be a pretty significant replacement. If you think about you know, the uh, f- customer service, when you call a phone number to sort of ask, you know, what happened to this, you know, the product I ordered, you know, is it, has it been shipped or whatever? I can imagine a lot of those conversations being done with an AI at the other end. I certainly see the potential for a lot of job impact on tasks that are routine or manual in nature. So for example, both in the finance area, as well as in wealth management, there's a lot of routine tasks that can be automated. And it turns out that AI is more rational and less emotional in managing money than humans, which are actually really good qualities. So uh, a lot of uh, finance firms and wealth management firms are actually developing AI tools uh, that are turning out to have uh, pretty good uh, records. I think the same thing is happening in the retail sector. Like we're already seeing fully automated retail stores uh, that are opening. Uh, There's one just down the block from uh, where I live. You basically walk in, uh, you scan yourself through the app of that particular uh, firm, you go shopping, you pick up the items uh, that you want. 
uh, the store uses computer vision to see what items you are taking, and it will automatically charge either your credit card or your mobile payment system. So there are no cash registers, no uh, sales clerks, not even a, a checkout kiosk where you're uh, scanning uh, the items. Basically, it's kind of an AI tool in computer vision that allows that store to be fully automated. And basically, they might have one person in the store to make sure the systems are operating, but no one else. And I, I, I think we'll see more of that. I also, at the same time, I can, I'm sympathetic to the idea that something is lost there, right? I mean, there is something about, you know, walking into a store and speaking with somebody who maybe has years of experience selling, you know, whatever the thing is, it is that's being sold in that store and, you know, can, and can engage you in a conversation responding to your particular questions about, you know, whatever it is you're buying. And I, I think it's going to be a little while before AI, if ever, can sort of you know engage with that kind of complexity in a in a real conversation about things. So I understand the efficiency, and and I'm sure it's going to happen. But I, I'm also sympathetic to those who are, you know say that there is there is something lost when you when you lose the human interaction. I mean, there certainly will be lost expertise, uh, but at a more fundamental level, there are going to be job losses in the retail sector as well as in the uh, finance area. I mean, the retail sector, for example, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have jobs as sales clerks. It's not clear we're going to need them in the future uh, because either the jobs are going to be automated uh, and they're going to be fully automated uh, retail outlets, or there are a lot of places now that have customer self-checkout kiosks where you basically scan the stuff yourself. And again, people who used to ring up the cash register are not going to have jobs there. Without, you know, that, I think you're, there are going to be changes. I guess it's helpful to also look at, you know, job creation. Um, you know, for example, to take, you know, take one example, I think Amazon has about a million U.S. employees right now. Um, and so those are jobs that were in some sense created thanks to the technology of the Internet. Um, I think there's about uh, something like between one and a half and two million rideshare drivers in the United States. You know, split, um, it's you know, Uber and, and Lyft, of course, um, are the dominant providers of that, and and you know that's also a technology-enabled uh, sector. So yes, the tr there it, it may be, it likely will be that the traditional retail sector loses some job opportunities, but. Um, I would hope that these technologies will also be drivers of new job categories and new job opportunities. You know, you, you can take a look at the long you know, list of, you know, in the early 20th century, there were elevator operators and traffic lights were operated manually. Or if you look at the late 1800s, I don't remember the exact percentage, but there was a very high percentage of the population, very significant percentage, I think in the tens of percent uh, that were people who were employed in agriculture. And today I think it's less than 2% of the U.S. population is employed in agriculture. And of course, um, there are new jobs now that didn't exist. So it's going to certainly change the job market, but I would, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it will create uh, new job opportunities as well. I mean, there certainly are going to be new jobs created from the emerging technologies, but there is a question whether people have the skills that are going to be required to qualify for those positions. There are some positions that are going to be high-level uh, uh, positions, and many American-born students don't have the hard skills necessary to qualify for uh, those jobs. There are other jobs that are going to be created that are warehouse uh, jobs, uh, truck driving uh, jobs, uh, and, and so on. Uh, but it's not clear people want those jobs because those are entry-level jobs with a relatively low pay. And I think that underscores the point you made earlier of the sort of lifelong learning and the importance of, you know, certainly in the present era, it would be a mistake for anybody at any career stage to assume that 
that the skills they have now are the only skills they will need, let's say, in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, I think, you know, uh, it's always been a professional uh, asset to be agile in that respect. And I think that sort of agility in terms of learning new skills or complementing the skills is going to be all the more important given the, given the pace at which AI and other related technologies are changing the, the environment. I agree. I think those are very important points. So if we actually step back from uh, new technologies in specific sectors, how do you think people can protect themselves during this transition to a digital economy? Like, are there concrete things people can do to advance their job skills and protect them from automation? You know, I think it depends. It's a, obviously a fundamentally important question. And I think you know, the answer is probably different uh, if, you know, you are uh, very early in your career versus, you know, somebody who's uh, far later in the career. But I think, you know, if I could answer it in the broadest sense, I think it is good and important to always be thinking, or at least to give some thought to how this changing technology environment might impact, you know, your job uh, or the job that you are hoping to have in, you know, five or 10 years or whatever the number is. And, you know, think, you know, are there, are there ways, are there things that you can do to adapt to that? And again, the concrete reaction might be different if you were 23 and having that uh, conversation with yourself versus if you're 45 or 55 and having that conversation with yourself. But I do think, um, you know, awareness of and giving some thought to these trends and how they might uh, impact your job and, and what skills you might seek to acquire to help you know, ensure that you can uh, take advantage of these technologies, uh, that's something that people can think about. I mean, the question that I think people should be asking themselves in regard to their own personal job situation is how routine are the tasks that you're doing in your job? Because the answer on what percentage of your job can be automated relates directly to that. Because almost anything that is a routine task either already is being automated or it certainly is gonna be automated in the next uh, one or two years. So those parts of your job will be at risk. So I- and, and by the way, as somebody who has to grade a whole bunch of student papers, I wouldn't mind if that, if that task got a lot more automated because gosh, that takes a lot of time sometimes. No, that, that is certainly a, a good point. I do think people, uh, as they're thinking about their own features, are going to have to engage in upskilling on a regular basis, lifelong learning, especially for young people, is going to be an important component in everything uh, that they end up doing. I also think the quality that schools need to be emphasizing now is a point that you mentioned, John, agility and adaptability, because we live in a world today based on mega change. There's large-scale transformation taking place through technology, there are changes in business models, there are geopolitical changes that are taking uh, place. Young people today are gonna to live through massive changes at a lot of different levels. And I think the most important skills they can develop are adaptability, resilience, and persistence in the face of mega change. If they can learn to recognize changes that are coming and how they need to adapt to them, they will end up doing pretty well in the future. And I just, I just say, I think it's a great point. I don't, I, you know, there are many wonderful things about our education, our college, you know, university education system, but you know, teaching adaptability in this respect is not, frankly, one of them. You know, I think, you know, uh, at least, you know, the parts of the educational ecosystem I see, the curricula tend to be very rigid. Uh, you know, they tend to be very slow to change. And um, even today, in the face of all these these changes that we're seeing and the, you know, the things that we're talking about here, uh, I, you know, there's I don't I don't know that we're 
rethinking curricula the way we should be um, to create the kind of educational environment that will foster adaptivity of the kind that you're rightly emphasizing will be so important in the coming years. And I think we can do a better job of that. I think right now schools place much greater emphasis on hard skills than soft skills, even though these soft skills like adaptability are actually going to be uh, very important. So I do think uh, both uh, high schools and colleges need to put uh, more emphasis on that. Uh, John, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today at Brookings. We write regularly about digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.